Good morning all. Please turn back to John's Gospel. And this morning we've reached chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. That's on page 888 in the Visitor's Bibles. John's Gospel, chapter 3. And I'll read again from where we left off last week in verse 14. Jesus, uh, finishing what he says to Nicodemus, says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, or perhaps for in this way God loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, the process of condemnation. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Well, friends, we have one job this morning, and that is to jump out of the pot before we're boiled alive, because I suspect if our evangelical subculture was the water and John 3.16 is the pot, then we are the little frogs being boiled so slowly that we don't even feel it. How many of us still felt our hearts sing when we read that famous passage, the way they once sang? I hope some of us did. But it is such a glorious verse, verse 16. It's a verse that means so much to every Christian that it's almost lost its flavor. I mean, it is my Wi-Fi password back at the manse. How mundane is that? It is the little message printed on the bottom of every carrier bag of a major global fashion brand. It is apparently the most requested thing to engrave onto an American handgun or assault rifle. And the irony is that this thing that we've become so familiar with is something that ought to be deeply, truly shocking. This is the week that one pampered Hollywood lovey marched onto a stage at the Oscars ceremony and slapped another man in the face. And then five minutes later, in front of the very same audience, he had to give a speech and with zero ability to read the room, He said this, I want to be a vessel of love. I mean, it's hilarious, isn't it? Just for the complete lack of self-awareness. What he calls love and what it led him to do was shocking. 
Now, what God calls love and what it leads God to do is very different. This is a passage where God demonstrates his love by taking the slap and the shame and the cost, not giving it, but it is just as shocking. God's love for this lost world is so intense and is demonstrated in such a scandalously big way that it is shocking. And if we manage nothing else this morning, let's at least be jolted again by the depths of God's love for the world and everything in it. If your heart is still flatlining after your morning coffee while John is standing by with the defibrillator, last week he charged the paddles. Today he has four shocks to administer to our chests. Short and sharp, in fact, they're summed up by one word each. And the first is simply that little word, at the start of verse 16 because that tells us the shocking result of God's love number one what did it lead him to do almost certainly from here this is John the writer talking now even if your red letter bibles put this in Jesus mouth he uses language here that smacks of John the author rather than Jesus But they are spirit-inspired words either way and every bit as important. And John steps in to speak here because he has some explaining to do. That's what the word for is telling us, isn't it? This is an explanation. Jesus has just said something utterly incomprehensible to Nicodemus. He said that if ever that man is to be given new spiritual life, The son of man has to be lifted up like a dead snake on a stick and die in his place so that anyone who wants to live and see his kingdom can look with faith at his cross. And in many ways, our passage today is an apologetic for that claim. It would be a scandalous thought, wouldn't it, to Nicodemus? A cursed, dead messiah. Fancy comparing the promised king of Israel to a dead snake on a stick. But when we remember what sort of book John is writing, we remember that part of his aim is explaining to people just like Nicodemus, searching religious Jews, that God did not get it wrong. He didn't send the wrong Messiah. This isn't really a book for people asking who Jesus is and answering, he's the Christ. It's a book, probably for Greek-speaking Jews above all, asking who the Messiah is, and answering, he's Jesus. Yes, really, the Christ is Jesus, even though he looks like that. So why is it a must, verse 14, for him to be lifted up? for spiritually dead people. Well, here's the shock. It was demanded by God's love. The shocking result of God's love is the giving over to death of his only son. What kind of love burns so hot as that? Now, the Greek scholars debate pretty fiercely whether the focus in Verse 16 is on the intensity of God's love or on the manner of God's love. And the reason for that is that the little word translated so there can mean both of those things. 
Occasionally, it has the sense we're familiar with from our translation. God loves the world so much. And to be honest, it takes a brave Bible translator to mess with such a favorite verse. More often, though, that word hutos means something like thus or in this way. Here is how God loved the world. It wasn't just warm feelings. He didn't just send his son as a messenger. He also gave his son as a gift. The most costly gift you could ever imagine. Now, my Greek is good enough to know that it will never be good enough to settle which of those options it is. And actually, I don't think it's the grammar and the syntax that will ultimately do it. To me, in this way, seems like a more natural reading. And when John writes an almost identical sentence in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, that is clearly what he means. In this way, he says, God demonstrated his love for, that, for us, that he sent his one and only son into the world. The coming and the dying of Jesus was an act of deep, real love, not just a sentiment. One scholar points out that nowhere in this gospel does God say, I love you. Rather, he demonstrates his love for humanity by self-sacrifice. The cross is Jesus' great, I love you. Either way, though, intensity is here too, isn't it? It's there in how John stresses the costliness of the gift. This was God's only son, his precious, one-of-a-kind son, not adopted like us, but his from all eternity. And we're told that to add to the sense of pathos. It reminds us of that heart-in-your-mouth story from the Old Testament when Abraham was called to give up his only son, Isaac. And yet God's love is so deep, so intense, that his gift has to go all the way. It really was God's love that held him there on the cross for you and for me, not just his wrath. There was no limit to the cost that love was willing to bear. And it's true, if we put our theology hats on, that when God gives, he gives without any loss to himself. He is perfect. He's never diminished. God the Father doesn't hurt as he sees Christ dies. Those things are true. But this isn't the sermon for exploring those truths. Because God has revealed himself to us here in human language. He knows that the best way we could ever hope to grasp his infinite settled affections are the ways he wants us to hear through the human concept of emotion and passion. We're being allowed to think of him almost as a grieving father. One whose love for the lost is so real and so raw that he gives what is most precious to himself. So when we look at the cross, we see not only the love of the Son there, but God the Trinity in all his love. We see what our sin has meant for him, the mess and the ugliness that he in love chose to wade into. It's a love we can't begin to fathom the depths of, but we believe it 
And we believe that love was the spark behind the event that defines all of history. Sometimes we talk, don't we, of God giving his son so that he could love us. And there's a precious truth that tries to get at. God gave his son for enemies to make them children. God's or, John's already told us that, hasn't he, in this book? It's not, though, what he's telling us here. God gave his son not so that he could love us, but because he loved us. The work of the son flows from the love of the father. It's not something we have to wring out of him. It pours out of him freely, the way a marriage proposal pours out of a lover. For John Calvin, that was something we have to fix and settle in our minds, precisely because there is not anything lovable and worthy about us. We have to grasp this, and we won't find any calm repose until we do. The first cause of our salvation, he said, is the unmerited love of God. So look at that little word, for, and take in the shocking result of God's love for you and me. The gift of his only son, lifted up like a dead snake. Jolt number two, another scandalous word. Who did God love? in sending his son. Well, I am a Calvinist to the very tippy tips of my toes. I believe that Jesus died for his bride, his elect. He died with your very name on his heart and in his prayers. But just like Calvin himself, I take it that when John says something plainly, he means it plainly. And John said, God loved the world. A word that tells us the shocking reach of God's love. Now, why is that so shocking? Well, because for us, the world is not something we're meant to love. In fact, it's something we're commanded not to love, full of things that we're commanded not to love. War crimes, abortion, adultery. The world is where God's enemies live. All of us who, by nature, live under God's wrath. And Nicodemus would have known that well, wouldn't he? The world was where idolaters lived who hated the God of Israel. And yet remember what he was told? Even you, decent, moral Jewish Nicodemus, even you are part of that. You have to become a whole new person if God will ever have you in the kingdom of his king. And so it's not uncommon for thoughtful Christians to react to this just the way Nicodemus must have. When God says the world, he must mean something else. Francis Turretin, one of the great meticulous reformed theologians, a very fine theologian, he argued that the world here must mean the elect, God's chosen ones. And quite a few have done the same thing. Because how can God love those he condemns. Others say what Nicodemus must have thought it must just mean non-Israelites. The problem is John uses this word, the world, quite a lot in this book, and he uses it in a way that is pretty consistent. The world in chapter one 
meant the great totality of fallen, rebellious human beings who reject God's Son. And Israelites are part of that world, even Israelites like Nicodemus. The whole shock of this truth, the reason God's love is so scandalous and so beautiful, is, as Don Carson put it, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. Now, it is rare in John and in the Bible as a whole to talk about God's love in this wide open sense. Love becomes a big dominant word in the second half of this gospel. And as Carson points out, the circle of that love becomes much, much tighter. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, the disciples. This general love is not something the Bible talks about often, but that makes it all the more precious. The shocking reach of God's love is this entire dark, God-hating world. There is a great, important sense in which God loves even his enemies, even those who will never come to his son. He loves the world even as that very same world stands under his hot, settled hatred of sin and what sin does to us and who sin has made us. He hates that. And yet at the same time, there's a sense in which he can love us. God loves the very people John implies here are perishing and tells us plainly that God condemns. That's why Ezekiel tells us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He loves them. Loves them enough to give his son so that for all their spiritual hardness and refusal, they might have a genuine offer of forgiveness. And I think we run into problems like this as Bible readers when we try to flatten the language of the Bible so that a word like love can only ever be used in one sense. God's love for the world is not his special fatherly love that he has for us as children. It's not an approving love. It's a love of pity. But that doesn't make it any less real. And as J.C. Ryle puts it, it's a love that clears him of any injustice in judging the world. God doesn't love the world in the way we're forbidden from loving it. Our love often means joining in. His love means washing and redeeming and judging wickedness. And it means there is a love in God that is even greater, even more wonderful and intense than the love of John 3.16. And that's the love he has for his own the love in which Jesus laid down his life for his friends. There's a difference then between the world in this verse and the whoevers. God loves them differently. The whoevers are you and me, if we'll trust him. We were part of the world up to our necks in its evil. But in God's special electing love, he chose us John will say later, out of the world. From heaven, he came and sought us to be his holy bride. It's a wonderful, precious truth. It's just not the truth John is talking about here. 
the shocking reach of God's love goes even further than that. When people reject me, I want to pull away from them, throw up the defenses. When people hurt us, we get hostile towards them, don't we? We get prickly. And yet God reaches out to people just like that, loves them. And in some sense, at least, he sent his son even for them. Which brings us, number three, to the shocking reason for God's love. And our third shocking little word, whoever. God gave his only son so that whoever believed in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In other words, the salvation of anyone who looks with faith to the cross at the lifted up son of man. God's love was for everyone, but the salvation he brought is for anyone. Not everyone, but anyone. And those words might sound very similar, but they are quite literally a world apart in meaning. Right now, God is holding out a genuine offer of salvation to all the world, to everyone. Even though everything Jesus said last week was true, that our natures reject that offer. In fact, it's impossible even for us to accept it without the Spirit's work in our heart. Nevertheless, the offer is sincere. It's a genuine offer because there is not a single human being who will miss out on what it promises unless they reject the terms. It's there for everyone, but only for particular everyones who trust in the cross of Jesus. Nobody in the history of the world has ever clung onto Jesus and then been let down in the face of death. It's a genuine offer. But at the same time, no human being in the history of the world has ever made it to heaven without trusting the gospel of grace. Because we live in a world, we're part of a world that is already under condemnation. It's why John has to say, verse 17, because we had no reason to presume Christ would come into the world for anything but condemnation. He came to a world that was already lost, not to neutral territory, but to rebels. And yet, amazingly, he didn't come to judge and condemn. Not yet. He came to rescue and redeem. Yes, it is true that Jesus Christ was absolutely, brutally frank and honest about where the world is heading and the reality of our sin. And yet, as one theologian put it, he didn't come to frighten us with judgment. He came to woo us with mercy it was a mission of love for a world that was already lost. And our only hope is moving from the everyone to the anyone. Not just believing about Jesus or believing that, believing that he was certain things or that he did certain things. No, believing in him, literally into him, so that Jesus personally is the one our trust wrestles with and receives and holds onto and rests in. That's what it is to become one of his great whoever. 
And so to get a sense of how shocking that whoever word is, we need to zoom out a little bit because John has very carefully shown us in flesh and blood what that word means. Right before this passage, we met a very, very good man, a decent, Bible-loving Jewish scholar. I heard one preacher call him the Reverend Professor Nicodemus, MP. I think that just about gets him right. And then right after this chapter, we're going to meet a very, very bad woman, a serial adulteress, someone whose life is dark and deceitful and incredibly sad. Not only that, but she belongs to a heretical, idolatrous sect. She's a Samaritan. But just as the world means world, it turns out that anyone really does mean anyone. It turns out that the very, very good man wasn't good enough. Unless he would look at the cross and receive a new heart, he was out. While the very, very bad woman is pictured as a bride of Jesus, the bridegroom. Can you imagine a more shocking thing for John's Jewish readers to hear? The reason for God's love in sending his son is to save absolutely anyone if and only if they will cling to Christ. Well, it's never promising, is it, when you're three points into a sermon and the preacher hasn't got past the second verse. But I think verses 18 to 21 are summed up pretty well by one last jolt. The shocking response to God's love. What if you will? What if you won't? Only two possibilities. They're hinted at in verse 16, perishing or eternal life. Notice there's no twilight zone, no purgatory. It's either an eternity of joy or an eternity of sorrow. It's made explicit in verse 18, believing or not believing. That's what divides them. There's no sort of believing in between. And then each option is teased out. Verses 19 to 20, here's how the condemnation plays out for those who reject Jesus. In rejecting goodness itself, they condemn themselves. Verse 21, here is how God's rescue plays out for those who trust him. In embracing his exposure, they live in a way that sings of his amazing love and his sovereign work in their hearts. And once again, there is one shocking word that really drives home the gulf between those two only responses. And this time it's in verse 19. It is the word I guess we might expect in response to such amazing kindness. And yet it is used in precisely the opposite direction. The word is loved. Ultimately, we reject Jesus because we love the darkness. And so we hate him. Isn't that a shocking thing to say? Who loves darkness and evil? Who hates Jesus? Well, God says we do, naturally. 
God loved the world in sending his son as light into darkness, but the people of the world did not love him. Why do human beings reject the most precious gift ever given? Well, not at bottom because of some principled philosophical commitment to atheism. No, we reject him because he is good. All of God's holiness and purity become concrete, objective, flesh and blood when he sends his great gift of love into the world. But when Jesus comes close to us, it's as if God is turning over the massive great rock that is our lives and all of the foul, creeping things that live underneath have to suddenly scurry away from the light. The natural response, verse 20, is to run and hide from him. Because we know, don't we, we've got a lot to be ashamed about. And worse than that, I think this is the shock, we want to stay that way. We like our lives in the dirt, down here under the rock. That word exposed, that has connotations of conviction and shame. We don't want our lives examined because we cherish the dark corners. We won't own up to them. I'm sure if we are honest with ourselves, we can still think, can't we, of those little dark corners of our lives that we don't want Jesus near. We don't want conviction and exposure. Where is it right now that the roaches are hiding? John is telling us that our response to God's perfect goodness in the person of Jesus is the one defining trial each one of us will ever face. He's not come yet to judge, and yet his presence itself is the great crisis that sifts every human heart. Because what does it say about us when we reject the good and the true and the beautiful? Sometimes we get little glimpses of this, don't we? Maybe you've been in a meeting where one person had the integrity and the courage to stand up for someone weaker than themselves. And in response, the bullying boss just turned on him, mocked him, criticized him, tore into him. And it looked in that moment as if the good guy was being judged. But the reality is quite different. Perhaps everyone else around the table stays silent but they all see exactly what's going on. They see that in rejecting someone good and kind, he's shown exactly who he really is. And just like that, he loses their respect forever. Well, we reject the most beautifully precious, loving gift ever given, and something very similar is happening. We proudly refuse to let our dirty hearts be seen in his light and be forgiven. And that shows exactly what we are. It's not really us judging Jesus, verse 19. In rejecting someone so good and so kind, we're actually condemning ourselves. Demonstrating to an innumerable audience of angels and men that God was absolutely just in his condemnation. And the tragedy is that the alternative is so much better. 
Run to Jesus. Run to that exposing, pure, dazzling light so that you can show plainly to all the world that God in his grace does it all. It's not an exact opposite, is it, this response? But the one who trusts Jesus doesn't need to fear his exposure. There's nothing to hide. They do what is true in that they live truthfully before the one who is truth and who knows the truth. The one who knew what you are at your ugliest moment before he was ever sent for you in love. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful freedom? To live truthfully before him. The Christian here in verse 21 is not an innately better person. We didn't believe in him because finally our better nature won out. God didn't find some spark of goodness or thoughtfulness in me that he used to bring me round. It was all him. And all that we do now, we do in Jesus' strength and power. Augustine puts it beautifully, blot out what you have done so that God can save what he has done. That's how you begin to do the truth. Which brings us right back to Nicodemus, doesn't it? That decent, committed man trying in his own flesh to live well when what he needs, verse 21, is to blot all of that out and receive the work in his heart that only God can work. And when we trust in the cross and we run towards Jesus and let him show up our mess and our shame and we, we don't try to hide it, then actually, says John, what we're able to do is show off that brand new, totally undeserved heart of flesh that God has put in us through his spirit and his son. We come to the light so that, so that we can make it absolutely clear that God has done it all so that our lives can sing of his scandalous love for us and his sovereign work in us. And there is the whole power in the Christian life, the life we're called to live, the magnitude and the manner of God's love. We could not hope to be more loved and we could not hope to be better loved. God's love then, even for his enemies, was so deep and shocking and pitying that it demanded the cross so that a world could be offered rescue from the condemnation that is already swallowing us up if and only if we will come to Jesus with our sin and shame. And the only right response to believing that is to make as much of that amazing love as we possibly can. So let's give thanks for that love as we pray and then taste it and see it and enjoy it around his table. Let's bow our heads. Loving Father, let us never stop being shocked by your goodness and mercy and scandalous love for us. Thank you that you see the depths of our hearts 
And yet rather than shrink back in horror, you gave the most precious thing you have to wash them clean. So help us, we pray, to run to Jesus' cross with our sin and shame and not to hide it so that our lives would make much of your amazing love and your transforming grace to the praise of your name. Amen.